This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luc Olivier Dumeblet. And I'm Yannick Mayen. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? Single-purpose device development with Android and Xamarin. Ooh, but before we start, you have some follow-up. Yeah, um, so I'm going to make you guess what episode this was. This is follow-up for episode 56 from January 2017. Do you remember what that episode might be? 56? I, I thought you were, a, for a moment, I thought you were about to make me guess mobile payments episode no. number two. But uh, no, 56 is pretty down the repertoire, so I don't really know. January 20, 2017 was the episode I recorded live from Japan after having gone to the Nintendo Switch event. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm doing this follow-up because this week I bought a Switch. What? Yeah. I won. I win. I win. <laughs> you finally bought a Switch. Wow. Well, of course, in, in uh, I did this in a moment of weakness at 2 a.m. on the weekend. And, uh, of course, I couldn't do it in the normal way. So I bought a tablet-only Switch, uh, which is an old model from 2017 that can be modded uh, because I am interested in fucking around with Switch Homebrew. Whoa, wait, what do you mean by a tablet only? I didn't have the dock or the charger or anything with it. It was just okay. the screen. No Joy-Cons either. Wow, okay. So I have every part of the Switch right now in front of me except for the Switch, uh, which is on its way from the US. Uh, but yeah, so uh, we're going to be discussing that in a future episode uh, because right now I don't have any thoughts about it because, of course, I just have a bunch of pieces of plastic that can't actually connect to working electronics right now okay wait so right now you have joy cons the dock the charger in front of you but the switch was a different so i have order. a third party dock i have the brook gaming uh i forgot what it's called hang on it's called the power bay ethernet which is a special okay. dock that has built in gamecube ports that simulate the pro controller and hmm. uh two usb and an ethernet port and an hdmi out so I have that. I also have the Hori Splitpad Pro, which are basically like Joy-Con, except they are not wireless, and they look like a normal game controller that you uh, slot onto the sides of the Switch, so it's more ergonomic uh, for handheld use. I'll have to look them up because uh, Tony bought some Ori controllers that were Pokemon team. That I don't think they were wireless either. So. Yeah, we might be talking about the same thing. Uh, right. And... Yeah, I have a power adapter, SD card, all that stuff just standing by waiting for the thing. And of course, my first game is Smash Ultimate because I've been in a big Smash mood recently. Wow. It took five years, but it did happen. Yes, and I have a whole story about that that I will share on a future episode, but I don't want to dwell too long on it this episode. But there oh, you go. You win. Goodness. I I win, but I'm super glad about this surprise because Yannick, as he always does, was teasing it. No, I was about to say profusely, but I think uh, you you teased it just enough uh, in the past few days. So I guess yeah, you announced it over the weekend. So huh, I see. So I guess I was one of the first people person that you texted after that because I think it was Saturday night. Oh well, uh, I digress. But uh, I. I don't know what to think. So I guess I'll let you talk about Xamarin, unless you have anything else during follow-up. Nope, that's it for now. But I think you add what you wanted, aka me being not speechless because I'm not, but like being completely surprised. Yes. So 
Back in May, I became the technical lead on a couple of Android projects at work. Uh, one of the one of the people on the software team was leaving the company, so we needed someone to take over those projects, and that turned out to be me. And it turned out that those apps were developed in Xamarin Forms, which is the write once, run everywhere subset of Microsoft's Xamarin mobile development framework. So in this episode, I kind of want to talk about uh, two main things. Uh, one of them is my experience with Android development on single-purpose devices, which is something I will define very shortly. And then how things have been going with Xamarin as a development environment specifically. So what do I mean by single-purpose device development? Uh, what I mean here is tablet hardware dedicated to running one or more apps by the product vendor to achieve a specific task. Uh, these aren't general purpose tablets that we are, uh, well, that our clients are giving to people. Uh, they're more specific devices and the underlying OS is more of an implementation detail to their product more than anything else. Uh, and more importantly, these tablets are not connected to the Google Play Store at all or to Google Play services and those Google support libraries. They're running uh, plain old AOSP, so the Android open source project, uh, where you can just download the source code, build your own firmware image. Like That's literally where they're running. Uh, the, I think the only change was that they have the client's logo as the default background instead of the default Android wallpaper. But otherwise, it's a pretty stock image. Uh, so if we go all the way back, uh, Android was a very attractive platform for these kinds of device manufacturers, maybe 10 years ago at the latest. Uh, if you go all the way back to when Android first got started back in like 2008, and so uh, you may remember that like the big push uh, with Android's, well, it wasn't really marketing, it was more so their messaging in general, was we're open. We're open to literally everyone. We are open to, uh, like, your smartphones are going to be open to the tinkering of the manufacturers, to the open to the tinkering of your phone carriers. They are open to your own tinkering. It's open to everyone. And, of course, because <laughs> you can be tricked into installing garbage on your phone, that also means that we're open to literally anyone who can trick you to install things. Uh, it was a big security free-for-all. Um, and they've sort of paid the price for that and they've changed their way a little bit. But back in the day, like it was very tempting for developers to go with Android because it was a free-for-all and it was very easy to shape Android into what you needed it to be to fit your product. I'm not convinced that this is still the case today unless you actually want to roll your own Android image, which I think very few of these companies are actually interested in doing. Uh, and... Google has focused more heavily in recent years on giving users more control of their phones and tablets uh, within the operating system. And this actively works against device manufacturers who want to rely entirely on user land development, which is to say they only want to work on developing apps and not working on a firmware image uh, for their Android distribution. So I'm going to give two examples of this. Uh, the first one is permission and user consent. Uh, so I think we did a whole episode about this long ass time ago, like even before the episode I mentioned earlier about the switch. Uh, yeah, I think it was one of my topics talking about yeah. like OS permissions and things like that. Yeah, uh, the Android permission model used to be really, really awful back in the day. It became a huge security nightmare long term. 
access to pretty much everything on the device could be requested with the right permission ID in your app's Android manifest file. And there were very few of them that were off limits to normal apps. Uh, users could be tricked or manipulated into giving overreaching privileges to malicious apps. Uh, also, the original permission system would present you with a one-time consent dialogue when you install the app and would never prompt you again, which is kind of bonkers. Uh, a bunch of the permission categories weren't granular enough, so even w often uh, well-meaning apps would ask for way more than they realistically needed just because the categories weren't granular enough. Um, if you installed apps from major advertising platform vendors like Google or Facebook, uh, they would often ask for literally all the access because why not? It's just more information for them to profit off of. Uh, and this in turn meant that apps with security exploits could be abused to do far worse things that with the permissions that they didn't actually need. Uh, so Obviously, this model had to change, and they, it did change. Uh, many permissions now have iOS-style consent dialogues on the first use of uh, an API using a certain permission. There are other different types of permissions that must be manually enabled by the user in a settings pane uh, in order for it to be granted to the app. Uh, there are particularly sensitive permissions that were completely restricted from normal applications and now must only be used either from Google apps or from apps that are signed by the hardware manufacturer, uh, which is problematic in certain cases uh, when you want to do things entirely from the user land and you don't have the signature for uh, the firmware image. Uh, all of this, of course, like I'm talking about it in a positive way because it's great for users of smartphones and tablets to take control of what is actually happening on a device they own. This is also undesirable for makers of single-purpose devices who don't want to annoy their users with consent dialogues constantly, and they are left to find workarounds to these consent measures. A similar issue is battery life and user awareness. Uh, so originally, uh, Android apps could run in the background unrestricted for as long as they wanted, and they didn't need to have any user-facing indicators that they were still running. And the funny thing is, you know how, how people go to their app switcher and they keep swiping away all the running apps? Well, first of all, that's bullshit. We all know that. Uh, but the second thing is... If you did actually use the app switcher screen on Android to kill running apps, what you actually did is you quit out of the user-facing activity, but the background services are still going in the background. So whatever you think you're doing to fix your battery life on Android, you're not actually doing anything. Uh, and this became really untenable and would lead to really bad battery life. So Android kind of changed their multitasking model uh, and tried to bring it more in line with what Apple was doing or they had particular uh, use cases they were designing for that you could uh, use those scenarios uh, if you fit within them. And if you wanted to use the old method, which was this completely unrestricted mode, you still can, but you need to show a persistent notification in the user's notification drawer so that they are aware that you're running in the background. Now, it's really funny because technically the only requirement is that the user is aware that your app is running in the background. You don't actually need to allow them to be able to kill your app that's running in the background. You can actually just run away with your process and stay in the background indefinitely, and the user can't really do anything about it if you want. But at least they're aware of it. <laughs> okay. It's just that now you're aware that we're draining your battery, and now you're also aware who is doing that, but sucks to be you. You can't do anything about it. 
Yeah, and I mean, like, <laughs> wow. one of the recurring themes with uh, our clients with these kinds of applications is oftentimes they make requests for workarounds for these kinds of things. And I have to be like, well, the reason this thing exists is because the thing you're suggesting we do can also be used by people who are making ransomware to make ransomware, and that's not good. Uh, but they're not thinking about Android as a platform that is shared amongst all phones and tablets that are not iPhones. They are thinking solely about their singular device, and they're like, yeah, but we're not making ransomware. But I'm like, yeah, but that's not what Google was thinking about when they put in these restrictions. And it's really funny because you could make a weird kind of ransomware, which is like, hey, I'm a background process, and I'm not going to stop siphoning your battery until you pay me a lot of Bitcoin. And that's totally a thing you could do. And you get a lot of ideas for very malicious applications working on these workarounds. I tell you, uh, you you get to figure out all of the evil ideas you could be making a lot more money with. Um, so once again, uh, with this persistent notification, this is great for users of smartphones and tablets. It would be greater if you could kill the app, but whatever. Uh, you want to be able to shut off apps that are burning your battery too quickly. And unfortunately, uh, most of these apps do let you kill the background service. They're not evil, uh, even though there's no requirement for them to let you. Uh, and you also want to be aware of potentially malicious background processes that you aren't expecting that are running in the background. Of course, this is undesirable for single-purpose device manufacturers because they don't want to expose the internals of how their stuff works to their users, and they don't really... It's it shouldn't be relevant to their users that there is a background process doing this thing because that's all the device is supposed to do, so they want to hide it. And basically, as Android tries to correct their the laxness of their security policies, it becomes increasingly obvious that Google doesn't really consider use cases other than phones and tablets to be within the scope of Android anymore. Uh, if you look at Google's own devices, the Google Home devices notably do not use Android anymore. They use Google's Fuchsia OS, which is a completely different thing. Uh, Every Android release introduces additional friction to single-purpose device manufacturers that are trying to work exclusively from user land. Because when you're working exclusively for, from user land, you are subject to exactly the same restrictions as someone who is sideloading on any phone. And that is a big attack vector for a lot of phones. Uh there are workarounds if you use MDM, uh, which on Android we call device owner apps, uh, or rooting your device can also get you a lot of leeway, but obviously these also introduce their own issues. Uh, notably, rooting your device kind of ruins a bunch of security uh, measures that are built into the operating system because you can just be root from any application on the phone, and that's not great. Um so at a certain point, you need to either decide to fork Android and patch out the security measures that aren't relevant to your use case, or just realize that Android isn't really a good fit for what you're trying to do anymore. And unfortunately, so much of our client's acceptance criteria for these apps consists of finding loopholes and workarounds for Android security policy that aims to protect users of smartphones and tablets from malicious software. And as a developer and as a user, it is deeply concerning for the security of the Android platform that we even manage to find loopholes and workarounds to circumvent security policies in the first place. Like, we shouldn't be able to work around these issues, but we are. And that is not good if you're trying to uh, say something about the security of your platform. 
Of course, all of these issues could be resolved in a cleaner, more technically correct way if clients were interested in building their own Android image, but it would be a massive time sink. You are basically... Uh, like your tiny team of developers in your company is going up against the giant Borg that is Google and all of the uh, phone manufacturers who also contribute on Android. And they can add security measures way faster than you are able to identify that they change the security measure and then patch it out. Uh, and it's just kind of untenable. So I, I mean... If I was in their place, I probably wouldn't go with Android. I think recently there have been really promising things on the GNOME mobile side of things on uh, embedded Linux, uh, where you can do some really cool user interface stuff with GTK and GNOME libraries uh, on phones now. It's the first mobile Linux UI thing that I have seen that has looked remarkably good. Uh, huh which is impressive. I, I think I'll try to find uh, a link for the show notes because I saw an article go by this week and I was very impressed with what I saw. Uh, and that's coming from someone who is really picky about this stuff. Uh, so I, I think there are good things coming. I don't know how production ready that is, which is kind of unfortunate. Uh, there are other uh, ways you can go about it. I know other projects within our company use embedded Linux plus uh, web user interface. Like I'm naturally biased towards native user interfaces, but that is also an option. Um, so th that's kind of the state of where things are with Android as a platform for dedicated devices. Next up, let's talk about Xamarin as a development environment. And more specifically, I want to start with the sales pitch for Xamarin because I think contrary to a bunch of other uh, third-party frameworks, I think the sales pitch for Xamarin is particularly good. Uh, we'll get to why that sales pitch doesn't really work out in practice later. But if you're only looking at the sales pitch, Xamarin is very attractive for a lot of people. So Xamarin is Microsoft's mobile development framework. And the entire pitch is you can use the same uh, know-how and techniques you're used to from other Microsoft development towards platforms from other vendors primarily iOS and Android. So this means you can use the same C-sharp language and standard library as most Microsoft-centric development for the last 20 years. You can use uh, the same app lifecycle and dependency injection patterns as server-side dev for .NET has used for about the last 10 years. You can use the same declarative view language, uh, which is XAML, uh, MVVM design patterns, and observable object bindings as you do when you're developing WPF apps on Windows, which I believe is about 10 years old. Uh, it's Windows Vista timeframe. Um, you can use any existing third-party .NET libraries that do not touch anything platform-specific, which is a huge repository of libraries. And of course, you can write your business logic once in a single language and share it across all your apps on all mobile platforms. On top of that, there are different uh, abstraction levels to using Xamarin, uh, which uh, personally, this is where it got me as a native developer, because uh, the lowest level one is Xamarin.iOS and Xamarin.Android. These are direct C-sharp bindings to the platform-specific APIs. So more or less what this means is you can write the exact same apps you would be able to write in Objective-C or in Java and Kotlin on Android, just using C-sharp syntax. Uh, it's direct bindings. If you've used something like PyObj-C or uh, I was going to say scripting bridge, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Um, if you use those kinds of bridging uh, with other programming languages before, this is the exact same thing. Sorry for the interruption, but I think the one you're looking for is the WinObj-C. 
the one that was yeah. bringing UI kit on Windows. Yeah, that's true. WinOPC is another good one. Uh, so yeah, you, you, they're direct C sharp bindings. You can literally just translate your code over. Uh, C sharp does have named parameters, so you can sort of fake your message passing syntax with iOS if you want to. Uh, so you've got uh, pretty good support for bridging with those languages. Uh, on top of that, there's also Xamarin.essentials, which is an abstraction layer around common OS functionality. So stuff like file storage, the accelerometer, making phone calls, text-to-speech, a bunch of stuff that is available on multiple platforms that you want to be able to call uh, from your app. Uh, then there's uh, Xamarin Forms, which is what my apps use. It's a multi-platform UI framework, which can target uh, mainly iOS and Android and uh, UWP, which is the Windows UI framework du jour. Uh, but <laughs> it also has support for Tizen, Mac, GTK on Linux, and uh, WPF, if you want to target all the way back to Windows Vista. Now, here's where things get a little bit complicated. Uh, Xamarin is not technically deprecated, but a new replacement to Xamarin exists, which is called .NET MAUI. I believe it is Multi-Platform Application User Interface, uh, which is part of .NET 6. So whereas Xamarin was a separate add-on to the .NET platform, MAUI is formally a part of the .NET platform. And this is important because versions prior to .NET 6 are kind of in a weird, ambiguous state of abandonment on non-Windows platforms. So if you're heavily dependent on developers that are using Mac or Linux, you may wish to migrate to this new thing, uh, if you can, of course. And because Microsoft has a life-threatening allergy to deprecating things, <laughs> you are left as a developer to figure this out on your own. Uh, I personally found this out when I was trying to configure a continuous integration for our Xamarin projects on a modern version of Linux. And it just turns out that if you use a recent version of not.NET 6 and Xamarin together, you get a bunch of DLL conflicts and it just doesn't work. Uh, and more often than not, people are telling you, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's because... Xamarin is no longer supported on Linux, which is not technically true, but it clearly doesn't seem to be supported on Linux. And uh, you should just update to MAUI, except I hope you can update to MAUI or that it's within the scope of your project. Um, so ultimately what I did is I ended up downgrading to an older version of Linux with older packages, which is kind of goofy. Um, but hey, I, I had spent a lot of time trying to set up the CI environment already and I just wanted the app to build in its current state. I wasn't ready to make the move over to the new thing right away. Uh, but it is frustrating that there is this image of Microsoft nowadays as being this embracer of other platforms. And in reality, uh, they have mostly concentrated their support for other platforms into the .NET 6 bucket and they have pretty much abandoned it on every other version of .NET that came prior, which is sad. Because there's still a lot, of, a lot of legacy code to support that isn't .NET 6. We've talked about why the sales pitch is good, and I agree, it's a pretty good sales pitch. Uh, if you look at our internal knowledge at the company where I work, uh, I, I'd say that we have about half the developers that have a C-sharp background, and we have about half the developers that have a uh, web development in JavaScript background. And so if you were to start development on an application, like the two big standout frameworks that you would be looking at would be React Native and would be Xamarin. And we have projects in both, surprising no one. 
The problem with the sales pitch for Xamarin is that it ignores a lot of things about what it means to be a mobile application. And specifically what I mean is .NET's entire concepts of app initialization and dependency injection go against mobile app development best practices. .NET's app, app initialization and, and DI come completely from the world of server-side web development. So that means that you declare your dependencies and you initialize all of your services up front when the app is first launched. And this makes perfect sense in a server environment where you spin everything up once at the start of your application when you boot the server. And then from that point on, all of your allocations are objects with a per request scope and lifespan. The problem is one of the first things you learn when you start writing mobile apps is that it's very important to defer the loading of the components of your app as late as possible until they actually become necessary. That's not what the .NET DI is going to do. And if you believe the sales pitch and you follow the documentation as it is laid out, you will very quickly encounter performance and scalability problems with your application. Because Xamarin allocates and initializes massive dependency trees up front on the main thread at app startup and there's not much you can do about it uh tragically you can go to stack overflow and almost everyone complains about their unreasonably long app startup times and there's never really a resolution to those threads it's just oh well we realized that if we wanted to make this application perform well we had to abandon the entire sales pitch of xamarin and then that stopped being appealing to us because that was the entire reason we bought into xamarin so we dumped it and we went with something else and that's not a good solution <laughs> yeah that sounds really less than ideal uh, especially when you mentioned that ev like all the dependency injection happen on the main thread on those mobile devices it's ugh. Oof. Yeah, and I was having issues uh, related to that on one of our apps where it was taking upwards of a minute to actually launch the app, which is really not good. And that would never fly on iOS. For some reason, it, it does appear to fly on Android. I'm not quite sure why. Wow, I'm surprised. I am too. Uh, it's just really strange. And like... There's never really any formal response for Microsoft. Like even when there are GitHub issues or whatever addressing this, it's just like, well, that's kind of old Xamarin, and we're working on MAUI, which has the same issues. Uh, <laughs> so it's like we're not really interested in discussing this. Maybe try out MAUI. Maybe it'll be better. Maybe it won't. Uh, and it's, it's like it's not really the kind of answer we want. Uh, and. I'll get back to that a little bit later in the episode because I think uh, at a certain scale of application, these issues are not a huge deal breaker, but you very quickly hit the limit uh, if you're doing anything ambitious and that is a problem. Next up, I want to talk about uh, Xamarin Forms itself. Xamarin Forms controls have limited customizability and are needlessly complicated to extend yourself. Uh, so Xamarin Forms ships with a very limited set of controls, mostly built on top of the common subset of controls that are available on both iOS and Android. So you've got stuff like navigation bars, you've got stuff like tab bars and uh, list views or table views and all of those like basic building blocks of applications. But of course, it is limited to anything that is common across both. Uh, luckily, there is a lot of overlap. Uh, but if you're looking for something that is platform specific, you're probably not going to find it here. Uh, unlike SwiftUI, there is a style sheet system and you can, uh, have the applied style sheet 
swap based on triggers from bound objects, uh, which is something I had personally requested for Swift UI, which is really cool. Uh, also, these styles can uh, inherit from other styles, kind of like CSS. So you can actually build something reasonable and just have like a short style description instead of having a massive uh, block of different style properties that you are customizing with weird internal statements. Most customization flags on Xamarin Forms controls are limited to flags that are common to both iOS and Android. And even then, knowing what I do about both, I think they were rather conservative with what they chose to expose publicly in their, in their public API. Uh, there are lots of things that you would expect to be able to customize. Like, for example, I have a button. I want the button to have a corner radius. Apparently, that was just not on the menu for some reason. They just didn't add it. I don't understand. You can add corner radiuses to normal views, but you can't add them to buttons. I really don't understand. This seems like something fairly straightforward. Uh, there, there's also sometimes an issue where the corner radius can be set, but it doesn't actually set it correctly because the border doesn't line up with where the corner radius is. Anyway, uh, lots of little bugs here and there. Uh, but the customization is just very, very surface level, and it's not great. This is especially frustrating if your designers don't build their UIs around the native controls of your target platform, but instead design everything with their own custom controls that step outside of what XF uh, Xamarin Forms provides. It's just a lot more work to implement custom controls than it is with native frameworks. Um, you can do it sort of two ways. You can create new views that are basically just XAML, which are just a composition of other views that already exist. Or if you want to step out into the native world, uh, then it gets a bit more complicated. You're going to need to declare an Android view subclass, a renderer class, and Xamarin Forms view subclass. So the Android view is literally a regular Android view subclass implementation, just as you would write if you were an Android developer writing something in Java. Uh, the Xamarin Forms view is a platform-independent data structure that can be used to declare your view in XAML files. And then for each platform, here I'm just going to talk about Android, you need to write a renderer class which binds the Xamarin Forms view with the properties of the Android view and its properties. And from a design patterns way, I understand why there is so much you need to write because it's a multi-platform framework and you need to account for the fact that someone could be writing an iOS app in the same project and you want the view to be able to map to an iOS native view as well. But it's a lot of boilerplate just to tinker with for a single native view. And in the case of my applications, I'm only targeting Android. So there's no real advantage for me uh, to stick with Xamarin Forms because I'm not writing something multi-platform. Uh, the only thing I really gain in quotes is the ability to write XAML instead of writing XML, which sometimes it's better, sometimes it's not. It's kind of a toss-up. They both are flawed in significant ways. Uh, speaking of flaws, uh, there is also a lack of good declarative constructs for dealing with massive interface hierarchies. Um, so in functional reactive uh, programming UI frameworks like React, your components are functions that return a representation of your view hierarchy, and it's the framework's responsibility to make the tangible UI controls match that representation. 
this effectively means that your view hierarchy at all times is dynamic and can change over time. Uh, if you use an expression like uh, you have a variable, let's say, should render navbar, and you do should render navbar ampersand ampersand, and then you put a navbar control next to it, if that should render navbar variable is false, the right hand of that expression won't even evaluate. So none of the markup or the underlying JavaScript code for that uh, navbar component will ever run. In XAML, it's easier to think of your XAML file as a fixed view hierarchy with very limited outlets for dynamic behavior. You have bindings and you have item templates. Bindings let you say, hey, uh, for my button text, I'm going to bind this to a property of an observable object, and that is what the text on the button is going to be at all times. It's just going to get notified whenever the uh, the observable object changes, and it's going to take that value and put it into the, the text attribute. You also have item templates, which effectively let you create a view template that represents an item in an observable collection. And primarily you see this in table views or list views, uh, where each item in your list has its own cell and then you create the template for the cell. And that allows stuff like view reuse and all of that stuff to happen transparently in the background. Unfortunately, there's no first party construct to conditionally mount and unmount views from your UI based on a bound priority uh, property. The closest thing we have is is visible, which is an attribute that allows you to hide parts of your view hierarchy on screen. But unfortunately, all of the code associated with those views is still running in the background. There's no way to do a lazy view, except there kind of is. Uh, Xamarin Community Toolkit, which is <laughs> this very strange thing that exists, which is it's a Microsoft-published library of community contributions that mostly re-implement features from MAUI that were not backported to Xamarin. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. Xamarin Community Toolkit offers a lazy view control, uh, which allows you to defer loading a, sub a subview until it's truly needed. It's also shockingly limited. Uh, the only attribute you have on a lazy view is the class name of the subview you want to load lazily. That's a problem because there isn't really any way to pass data or attributes to the lazily un instantiated underlying view. Each view has this thing called the binding context, which is basically just uh, the object on which you can bind the various properties. Uh, it automatically inherits the binding context of its parent view, which means if your parent view is bound to a different view model class than the one that your lazily instantiated view is expecting, you just get runtime exceptions. It's great. Um, there are ways to uh, work around this, of course, but the problem is like the only clean way to have things be visible and not visible is with is visible. And as soon as you try to do things in a way that is good for performance and uh, limits the amount of instantiations and code that is running at once, you have to resort to crazy hacks. And it's really bad sign when you can only sort of segment your UI in insane ways by resorting to crazy hacks. And it just leaves this terrible taste in your mouth. And like sometimes you get into parts of existing apps that are just disasters because they effectively are running the same UI three times for three different scenarios. They just hide and show the one that's relevant at any given time. And there just isn't a good 
tool in your toolkit to deal with that. So it's like, I understand how it wound up this way because there were no good solutions to it. It doesn't mean it's impossible to fix it, but it's a lot of work to fix it. And it just reflects poorly on your platform that something so basic requires so much effort. And last but not least, I think Xamarin as a whole is just a poor fit for ambitious applications. I think the sales pitch of Xamarin works really well and can do the job adequately for apps of a very limited scope. One of the things I see most frequently written in Xamarin is like summer festival apps, like uh, little apps that summer festivals make that give you like this package of news. There are maps of the festival site. Maybe they have an event schedule. Like if they're really extravagant, maybe they'll have notifications to warn you that your concert is starting soon, something like that. Adopting Xamarin becomes increasingly risky with apps that go beyond simple content consumption or cred-style apps. Uh, To give you a tangible example of why I think this, I've been working on inter-process communication uh, for the suite of apps that I'm working on for one of our clients. And I was running into Xamarin-specific issues with my IPC implementation that were due to how the Java interop layer works. Uh Uh-oh, that doesn't sound fun. It's not fun. Uh, you can have pretty good l- luck on Stack Overflow getting help with general Xamarin development use- issues because there are a lot of Xamarin developers. You'll find people to help you with general Xamarin development issues. You, you start having trouble finding people who can help you with Android IPC with an Xamarin app because most Xamarin apps are literally just trying to be cross-platform. Like they don't even bother writing anything that is platform specific. Uh, but even if you are writing stuff that is platform specific, the chances that you're actually using IPC are significantly low. You have to be integrating with a specific app uh, to do this. Um, and there are other like less messy ways of doing that communication. Like you can just say, hey, uh, I want to integrate with apps that respond to this intent instead. And for a lot of use cases, that is sufficient. Um, so you aren't going to be finding a lot of help with regards to Android IPC with an Xamarin app. If you're doing what I'm specifically doing, which is trying to establish an Android IPC connection between two Xamarin apps by the same developer, you will find nothing because I searched for it and I found literally nothing. <laughs> uh, a long time ago, like uh, Marco Emerson said, like you never want to be the biggest user of a technology that is... Uh, not at a certain point of maturity because then you sort of have to be the trailblazer who figures the stuff out for the first time. Uh, And making use of Xamarin in an ambitious app just increases the likelihood that you'll be a trailblazer, that you'll probably be the only user of Xamarin plus XYZ Android framework together. And you're going to be left to figure out your issues on your own. And I think If we had known from the very start of the project that eventually the scope of the project would include establishing an IPC channel between two Android apps, I think the calculus between uh, the calculus of choosing the correct mobile app technology would have skewed very differently. I think if you're going to go into these more, uh, I, I don't really have a good word other than ambitious, but like if you're going to be pushing the boundaries of what your app is going to do to involve lesser used frameworks uh, I think it's particularly risky to do so uh, with Xamarin and I think 
scope creep is always an issue regardless of language, but I think scope creep can really bite you in the ass with third-party frameworks like Xamarin because if you're creeping into the wrong frameworks and feature sets, it can completely kill your ability to get any kind of passable support or resources online. And I mean, it's it doesn't make implementing stuff impossible. Like I did ultimately resolve my issue with the IPC channel I had to sleep and I figured it out in a dream foolishly. Um, it, my dreams turned out to be more effective than Stack Overflow in this case. But it's like, it, it's not, you, you don't want to go into a project knowing that that's going to be the case. Um, you would choose differently if you knew it ahead of time. Because there is the uh, there is plenty of documentation of people who are doing IPC between two Android apps not using Xamarin, but in this case, I was actually hitting a Xamarin-specific issue. Mm. And it's like, well, cool, have fun. <laughs> right, because that's what I was asking is, I wouldn't be surprised that every time you encounter... not Let's use the example of IPC, but let's say just for the sake of it, it will be any other Android native framework. You always have the question in the back of your mind is... Is it an issue of the native framework or is it an issue of the bridge through the native framework? And it seems that right now that for that case, it it was more the latter than the former. Or sometimes it's just not understanding the expectations of uh, like for 95% of the code. There is so much similarity between C Sharp and Java that you can pretty much you can almost copy and paste it from one to the other. And it kind of just works. Um, Right. There are like capitalization changes here and there because the norms are different for how you capitalize things of different levels and some things have underscores and don't in other ones. Um, so it mo- mostly comes down to naming, not really syntax or stuff like that. But then when you're implementing stuff that doesn't really have an equivalent in C sharp, like anonymous classes, which are a concept that exist in Java, but don't really exist in C-sharp. So then you're like, well, am I actually implementing something that is functionally equivalent to an anonymous class that this API would accept? I don't know. Mm. Are there weird restrictions because I am subclassing java.lang.object in a C-sharp project? Wow. Uh, why am I getting a crazy JNI handle object? And of course, like the thing is, IPC is the worst possible thing because it's all about transferring data between apps and serializing objects and you're serializing Java objects because it's a Java API. So you're dealing with the internals of that system, but you're also not writing Java. So it's probably one of the worst possible cases. The only thing I can possibly think of that could be worse is maybe like writing 3D graphics (laughs) <laughs> in Xamarin. I don't even know if you can. I I imagine probably with the Xamarin Android layer you maybe can. Um but like it's it's when you get into those specific frameworks that are they were never designed intending for them to be used with Xamarin and you're sort of hitting that limit of like is this a framework issue? Is this Xamarin issue? Is this a me issue? <laughs> is this a Java right. interop issue? I don't know. At some point, uh, my compiler was throwing an error and I clicked on the error in Visual Studio and it opened a Java source file that was generated from one of the classes that I wrote. I didn't even know it generated Java source code. Like, <laughs> you keep winding up in these weird solutions as soon as you do something mildly ambitious and that just 
it, it, it's scary and it's risky. And I would not recommend it if you are going into it with the idea that you're going to be writing something potentially quite ambitious. And like here, we're talking about applications that are interfacing with hardware connected over USB, uh, serial port communication, uh, NFC integration. Like there's a lot of external services that if I was the one who had to make the decision for which tech stack we were doing, I would not have pushed the Xamarin uh, direction because there is so much risk in all of that stuff that it's a miracle that it works at all. And I, I do want to add, add in my, um, my iOS developer perspective because there's, I know this episode is ostensibly about Android and Xamarin, but as an iOS developer in particular, I also have this added, um, point of view with regards to Xamarin, which is a lot of what Xamarin does right now is based on the existence of the Objective-C runtime. And I know this very well because I was used to be a jailbreak developer and it was my goddamn job to work on the Objective-C right. runtime. It is a, a question I had and I was trying to find the best moment to ask about it because when you mention it earlier in the show, a lot of your description of, I think it's Xamarin.iOS, right? That yeah. is the kind of native bridge implied that it's based on a lot of the Objective-C framework. So everything that is in Swift, is it available? Nope. <laughs> and there's no real good story for what is going to happen once uh, Swift becomes more uh, wow. more of a presence within uh, iOS development frameworks. Like right now, of course, most frameworks are not there but like you can't do swift ui with xamarin like that's right. just not an option uh and as more and more apis start to be introduced that are swift only xamarin st- sort of starts to fall behind in the same way that objective c apps are and you are on a sinking ship like i already right. think you're on a sinking ship if you're on xamarin for ios right now and i think if you're evaluating xamarin as a multi-platform framework, you need to be aware that it is a sinking ship because they're not going to publicize it. <laughs> right. It's going to be multi-platform except for iOS. And like, it's one of their two flagship frameworks right now. And like, there, there are always going to be workarounds. Like this is Microsoft. Uh, they mm-hmm. have a lot of developers that they can uh, rely on to do whatever needs to be done to actually <laughs> uh like if, if they were generating java code from the class that i wrote they can probably do some sort of swift code generation at the same time swift has a lot of language features that c sharp does not have that it would need to find some sort of equivalency to or have some really ugly binding layer that tries to simulate swift ui structures i don't know uh there's a lot of work that would need to be done for Xamarin to be viable at all in a post-Swift world. And I just want to warn everyone who wants to maybe use Xamarin to do iOS stuff that you are on a sinking ship and there is no coherent story right now for what happens in the future. And unless Microsoft makes a very compelling statement, and of course you don't run into any of the issues I mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, you probably shouldn't use it. I, I can't recommend it for that very reason. And I think this point is interesting because now that I think of it, this would impact all the cross-platform native framework compared to cross-platform framework that's based on web technologies. Because in the end, you can always render 
a web view using SwiftUI in some fa- like there's a web view component, I guess. Uh, I say that and then I haven't looked, but yeah, because web WK web view is it's still based on UIKit. Hmm. But ultimately, I think like if you're using React Native to do iOS development, you're safer, right? You're safer because you're not actually going to be using React Native alongside SwiftUI, right? Because right. they're essentially trying to do the same thing. They're alternatives to each other. I, th- I think that the, the point I was trying to make is I am aware that Xamarin is one of the quote-unquote biggest uh, cross-platform framework that leans heavily on the native technologies but there are others and i think with what we just discussed is they're all in that same boat where on ios the more objective c api i don't say dies but they they shrink or they just don't get updated because guess what it's gonna happen is it tomorrow i don't know but when that starts rolling faster where there's less and less support on UIKit. Like those other, like uh, Flutter as an example, like they'll be stuck. I think Flutter is a weird example because I'm pretty sure they roll their own UI custom. They don't bind onto mm, <laughs> UI classes. Right. Um, so that's a weird but example, that be- but that's like, it, it's Google. It's <laughs> Of course, they're doing it that way. Right. But, but it's, no, it's still a good point to make though is... It does mean that if you want to keep building a cross-platform framework using native technologies in the years to come and also support iOS, you might end up writing your own UI framework from scratch and have its own bridge to it with your different technology so that you don't rely to cross-compiling or like relying to talk to the objective c runtime so that you can talk to ui kit like you might have to build all of that from scratch which is something i didn't consider which is uh i guess really interesting and frightening at the same time <laughs> yeah uh well of course as a fan of uh native uh, platform native ui frameworks uh i am really not into any of that <laughs> right and i think what what's frightening me is the fact that I think it will push even more people on the web-based cross-platform technologies. I don't know how those are going to stay relevant. Like, I, I guess if Swift becomes so prominent, yeah, to a certain degree, you just get it. But I, I think most of the uh, web developer mindshare right now for mobile has gone towards React Native. Mm-hmm. And only if that stops being viable does that become a problem. At the same time, if there is a company that I know that has a lot of iOS engineering talent that they can rely on to actually write a passable iOS-like UI framework, it's Facebook. (laughs) Yeah, we shouldn't go through the list of UI frameworks for iOS that they've built in the last 10 years. Yeah, they are very good at faking iOS stuff to look native. Uh, and there's a lot of that expertise, although I don't know how much of it is left, but they used to have a lot of expertise in that domain uh, at Facebook. So I imagine that they could do something pretty passable for React Native as well. Um, but I think a lot of stuff like, uh, I think it's Ionic and uh, whatever phone gap is now and all of that stuff, all of that sort of took the backside because I think a lot of people have had really bad experiences with those apps and they're pretty crappy overall and react native 
it gives you all of the upsides of those frameworks while giving you none of the downsides. Well, almost none of the downsides. So I think a lot of the web developer shops that are shifting to mobile development are doing React Native now. But yeah, that, that's about it. So you can find the show notes for this episode at limitlesspossibly.net slash 190. Uh, 190. You can also find our back catalog of episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at, at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Lukonosh. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And Yannick is at Sakarina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.